All right, grab your Bibles and open them to Proverbs chapter 7. Uh, We're back in this book of wisdom after a little bit of time um, off. We spent the last three weeks talking about church planting, um, and now we're we're moving back into Proverbs. And as we get back into it, uh, chapter 7 is going to provide for us a number of good reminders of what the first six chapters have covered. Um, And so rather than an extended introduction today, some of you really appreciate my long-winded introductions, Um, rather than a long introduction today, we're going to get right into it and we're going to let the text um, sort of do the work of getting us back into Proverbs. So Proverbs chapter 7, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. It says, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So as we have seen, as we've been going through Proverbs, um, this is wisdom being passed on from a father to a son. Um, So the father who has lived life, who has learned and sort of collected this wisdom throughout his life, attempts now to give it to his son. And his hope is that his son is not going to have to learn all of these lessons the hard way. Um, That his son is not going to have to suffer and learn the difference between right and wrong through pain. And so the father's trying to get ahead of it, saying, follow these things and you won't have to deal with all of the fallout. He's giving his son an alternative to all of the destruction that sin brings into life. Right? This is a better way to live. And so he tells his son to listen. He tells him to keep. He tells him to treasure up this wisdom that he offers. And so what he's doing is he's imploring his son to to take action with what he has been gifted. Right? It's not enough to just hear. It's not enough to just receive wisdom. You have to actually put it into practice. Now, as we've said, this father-son relationship in Proverbs um, is meant to give us a glimpse of how we relate to God. Proverbs does provide us with some great uh, direction on how to parent in this world and and pass on the wisdom that we have received in an earthly level. But first and foremost, we should see ourselves as the foolish children who need guidance, right? We are the child in relation to our Father God, and that's how we should read Proverbs. And when we view it that way, the first truth that comes through here is that wisdom comes from God, but we need to act on it. Which is to say, it's not enough to just believe things we actually have to make changes to our habits and behavior that align with what we believe. The epistle of James puts it this way in James 1.22, be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so what he says there, the claim that James makes is, is that it's not only incongruent or hypocritical to believe something without conforming your actions to it, he says it's actually a means of deceiving yourself. And what he means is, your actions prove that you don't really believe what you think you do. Right? You proclaim things with your mouth, but the way that you live shows something else. Now, I find this interesting because a lot of the conversation about sort of Christians and hypocrisy act like Christians know what they're doing when they're being hypocritical. Right? Like Christians just kind of do say one thing and do another, those jerks. But James makes the case here that it's actually that we're blind to our own hypocrisy. We are deceived, which means you can go to church and do your devotions and intellectually ascend to the idea of Christianity, but not actually mean what you are saying or trust what you are reading. 
And so applying the truth of God becomes an important part of not only doing good, but aligning these two parts of our lives. Right? Doing assures us that what we believe flows out through every part of our life. James 1 goes on to say in verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so this is what the father in Proverbs is encouraging his son to do, what God is encouraging us to do with the wisdom that we have been offered. Be doers. Right? We're not merely people who are driven by ideas and internal beliefs, but what we truly trust is shaped by our actions. Which means if God's truth remains sort of just in the ideological realm as we live our lives in the physical, we will find that this temporary reality will pull us away from his eternal truths. What we experience and desire in our daily existence will overwhelm what God declares to be true. In other words, what we do will be more powerful than what we believe. Now, this isn't because reality does not align with God's truth or that somehow a life proves God wrong. No, it's simply a reminder to us that this world is set up in a way that is bent towards evil. As I talked about in my last sermon on Proverbs, uh, the forces that pull us towards sin are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? Human ideas masquerading as wisdom, Satan actively plotting to destroy every part of God's good creation, and our sinful flesh drawn to what is not of God. These three work together to pull us away from God and to get us to imagine that, that life is actually much smaller than it actually is. Right? That's actually what they do. They truncate reality and make us satisfied with far less than God has promised us. Because this is the way the Bible describes it. The Bible says that we are eternal beings living in an eternal universe under the guidance of an eternal God. That is big. Yet we have been convinced in this life to condense value down to ourselves and to the moment. And if we can be convinced that what is most important is self and right now, we can be drawn into all manner of sin. Because once life has been minimized to that point... What we believe will disappear for the sake of momentary experience. And so what we're talking about here is, is temptation. And what we need to understand with temptation is before we are ever given the option or enticed to sin, we have already been conditioned to do so. In this life, the cards are stacked against us. Now, that doesn't mean we have no option. It doesn't mean that, that somehow sinning is not our fault. No, sin is always a choice. We are always responsible for the choices we make. But our decisions start way before we have a carrot dangled in front of us. And so we need to be preparing for temptation so that we are ready to face it when it appears. Right, one more verse from James 1. Um, this one telling us that standing in the face of temptation and remaining steadfast is the goal that we should work towards. This is to make sure that you actually believe that this is a goal that is worth embracing. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So to be doers in relation to temptation is to live a life aware of sin's allure, and it means that you are filling yourself with the truth of God so that you can turn away when sin comes. In other words, the best defense is a good offense. Being consumed by God's good is the best way to resist temptation. And that is what the Father is telling us here when he says, if wisdom is your intimate friend, then it will be here to help you, to help keep you from the forbidden woman. Now in the next section, we're going to look into the forbidden woman, the adulteress. That's where we're going to spend our time today. Um, that is a, a description of the temptation to sin. But I want us to see in this first section that we have been given an if-then um, statement. That is, if you do the work of filling yourself with God's truth, then you will be prepared. And so it isn't enough to just go through the motions or get the general idea. No, we must bind God's law on our fingers. We must write His truth on the tablets of our hearts, which is work. That's going to take time. That's going to take effort. This doesn't just happen. Right? In the same way that we don't just assume that our kids are going to sort of learn math through osmosis, right? Hopefully they pick it up along the way, right? No, we teach it to them. We make them take tests. We do flashcards maybe even. Right? In the same way, then, we must train for godliness. We must take it seriously enough to say this is worth working on. This is worth studying. If we do take it seriously, it will help keep us from the forbidden woman. If we don't, then we will fall into the trap of sin. And so the Father now is going to go to great lengths to describe the way that sin ensnares us, that temptation grabs hold of us, using the metaphor of the adulteress and um, the young man. And so I'm going to read the next section. It's actually 15 verses, so a big chunk. Um, And rather than focusing too much on every single word, I just want you to get the picture that he is painting here. He is describing something. He's giving us an image. This is what he says, verse 6. He says, At the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward, her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold force she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows." So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home, he has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. So the scene is described here as something that is being seen or watched through the window. Um, And this isn't meant to be a specific situation, but sort of a general description of how temptation works. Um, And as the Father kind of describes what he sees, there's a number of steps that happen here to draw the young man in. And every step towards sin is another place where where the young man could choose an off-ramp. 
See, too often what happens is we get caught in a direction, or we go in a direction, we get caught in the, the current. And we don't take advantage of all the different opportunities that we have to repent and turn. And so this is a reminder, you can always turn back to God. You are never so far down the road of sin that, that you're too far to reject sin and embrace grace. And the sooner that you turn away from sin, the less the sinful consequences that you're going to have to deal with. Right? Too often, people fear the shame, they feel the consequences, and so we don't take the off-ramps that are available. But the best thing that we can do is break free from the trap of temptation, even if it's going to cost us something in the short term. And so in this example, the Father describes the lure of the forbidden woman as sort of these pieces or these steps that fit together to make her temptation effective. And so I want to look at each of these so we can kind of identify them and get an idea of what these off-ramps or what these steps look like. The first thing that he tells us is that the young man has put himself in the place of temptation. It says, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. Right? So she dwells in a specific place. The young man knows where she is, and that is where he goes. He puts himself in her path. Um, There's a reminder that there are places in life where you are much more likely to get yourself into trouble. Right? It also says in the twilight, in the evening, at the time he's doing this undercover. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He's hiding. Um, I talked before here about the disconnect between what we say and what we believe. I would say that's on display every week when we come here together, right? Every week when we come here, we pray together, lead us not into temptation. We pray that God would keep us from the lure of sin, but then we walk out those doors and some of us just run right into it, right? We put ourselves in all sorts of situations that we know are just like half a step away from sin. This is foolishness. Instead, we must do whatever is in our power to avoid sin. And this begins by staying away from the situations that put us on the edge of the cliff. Now, these situations are different for each of us depending on the specific sin that we deal with in our lives. But let me give you a couple of examples. If you are an alcoholic, don't hang out in bars. If you're prone to comparison and self-degradation, do not subscribe to Glamour magazines. If you struggle with gossip, don't hang out with the ladies when you know that that is where it's going to go. If you are sort of lean into ideological division, stay off of social media. If it's porn, avoid places where you are alone with internet access. Right now, I could go on with a lot more of these, but I ended on that one for a reason. Um, Too many men are tempted by and fall into the sin of porn. And many of them are unwilling to take the steps to actually keep themselves from temptation. Right? There are things that you can do. I was dealing with a guy some years ago, and pornography had absolutely destroyed his life. Um, Everything. He'd lost everything. And so as we're sitting with him and working through this, one of the recommendations that I and another pastor made for him was that he gets rid of his computer. Like, you need to just get rid of it. Um, And he was just kind of like dumbfounded. He was like, do you not understand that you need a computer to live in this world? I was like, no, I I do realize that. But I also reminded him of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 29. 
He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now that verse is specifically in relation to looking at a woman lustfully. Jesus isn't actually suggesting that people go and make themselves blind. Let's just put that away for us right away. But he is implying that we should go to great lengths to keep ourselves from temptation. If we know what is making us sin, we should be willing to actually do extreme things to remove that from our lives. Now, it would be great if we were all spiritually mature and could handle all of the temptation that comes into our lives. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Don't kid yourself. We aren't able to handle it. And so honoring our weakness and our, and our limitations means avoiding tempting situations and creating an environment that is going to lead us to righteousness. And so we should pray that God keep us from temptation. We should pray that he takes away our sinful desires. But we should also do our part not to run into situations that are going to lead us to failure. So that's the first off-ramp. Avoid temptations in the first place. Do not go to things or people who pull you into sin. The next thing that the Father points out is that the forbidden woman has adorned herself in order to attract her prey. It says she is dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's bold, and it says she seizes him and kisses him. Now, in order for a woman who is dressed like a prostitute and aggressive like this to be attractive to you, you have to actually want what a prostitute offers. In other words, she's playing a part. She's, she's, she's playing a role. And it's a part that has already been imagined. Temptation only works when it gives you what you are already seeking. I've spent time talking with people who have cheated on their spouses. And every single one of them has daydreamed or imagined in some way that situation before it happened. In other words, they were prepared in their own minds to step out. And so when this other person showed up, they basically just put a face on a dream that had already been played out time and time again. Now, we don't have full control over our thought lives. Things are going to pass through our brains, right? As sinful people, we will have impure thoughts and desires that go against God. The problem is not that they pass through your mind, but whether or not you give them a place to live. Right? Martin Luther famously said, you cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Brilliant. In other words, we can't always keep an impure thought from popping up, but we are responsible for what we do with it. And this is about a lot more than adultery. This goes for hatred. This goes for revenge. This goes for jealousy. Right? In our lives, we spend a lot of time imagining what we will do or say to those people who have hurt us. We spend a lot of time and energy imagining how we are going to hurt someone else. And the time that we give to these things shape us. Right? There are many here today who have actively played out sin in their minds and given their thought life over to impurity. And the warning is, it will not stay contained. It doesn't just stay in here. And so the solution is to set your mind on the things that are above. Right? So if you, if you actually care about having a healthy marriage, if that's the thing that you are making the priority then the forbidden woman becomes an assault on everything that you hold dear. 
If healthy relationships with God and with others is your aim, then anger and hatred will destroy what it is you love. And so you won't want to have them in your life. And so we prepare ourselves for temptation by building up what is good and right and pure. Only then can we turn away from the forbidden woman's trap because we see that what she offers will rob us of what we truly want. And so the second off-ramp is have your mind set on what is best. Be prepared to walk away from options that sabotage the good that God intends for you. The next part of the Father's description is all about the ways that the woman has prepared herself for the seduction, each one kind of pulling the young man in closer. Uh, She tells him that she has just offered sacrifices, which sounds really weird. I'm kind of like, okay, you're just coming from church? Um, What she means is is right after you go and offer sacrifices, you have a big chunk of meat to bring home, and so she's got the meat at home ready for him. So there's a feast that is prepared. Um, She then compliments the young man. She said, I came to find you. Right? You are the one. So she, she kind of tugs at his ear a little bit. Um, she has this, the room set with fancy linens and perfumes. And then she promises him um, a night full of, of passion. In a way, all of these are sort of icing on the cake. Um, these are the ways that sin appeals to our senses. I mean, in this description, you have sight, hearing, touch, taste, smell, all addressed. It's actually pretty amazing that sort of all the senses are addressed in this description. And this is a reminder to us that sin will often be adorned with good things, right? Because all of the things that she describes here, right, good food, good place, good time, these are all things that God has created for us to enjoy. These are good things from a good God. He even gave us the senses to be able to enjoy them. But these good things can be twisted and used to lead us into sin. And so we need to be aware that sinful destruction does not usually present itself as such. As I was reading this, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if the forbidden woman was like a medicine commercial? Right? Like, you get all of this. Side effects may include dysfunctional families, crumbling marriages, insecure children, shameful sense of self, lawyer bills and trauma, court dates and years of therapy, right? Usually said fast in a whisper, though, at the end, right? But that sort of foresight would be awesome, right? Okay, so here's the choice, but that's not how it's offered to us. Instead, sin comes sugar-coated. It is wrapped up in very attractive packaging. And so we need to be discerning. To be discerning means that we realize that everything in this life has a cost uh, and a benefit. Every single thing in this world is a good that has been twisted. And so we need to be aware of what we are consuming and what we are connecting ourselves to. If we allow our senses to be the only means by which to distinguish good and bad, we will end up following our desires into all manner of sin. And so the third off-ramp is, be aware of the deceptiveness of sin. Be ready to reject things that stir your affections if they also lead you away from God. All right, there's one more thing in this section. The forbidden woman tells the young man, my husband is is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. As as a full moon, he will come home. Um, Basically what she's saying is, there's not going to be any consequences. You're not going to get caught. 
Right? This sounds really good if your main concern is getting what you want and getting away with it. But as she brings up her husband, it should make the young man go, huh, wait a second. I just remembered there's somebody else involved. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Right? The fact that she has a husband whose back you are sneaking around behind should shock you to the wrongness of what you're doing. So our primary concern should not be, can I get away with it, but is this actually right? One of the things that the Bible calls us to do is to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, we usually think of this in terms of sort of helping someone who is in need. It is definitely that. But here we see it's also a means of kind of keeping us from or protecting us from temptation. That is, when we're making decisions, it's not just about what we want or what we can get, but about how our decisions are affecting other people. Is this actually loving to others the way that I'm acting? Because sin does not stay private. Even what happens in the privacy of one's own bedroom, it has consequences, and we need to consider these. So this is the fourth off-ramp. We must consider how our sin affects others. And if it's not serving and loving others, we should not indulge, even if it gives us what we want. Now, in all of these, you can see there is a preparation that needs to happen beforehand. There's a readiness that happens before. And if we are not ready, like the young man here, we will fall prey to the trap that sin has laid. So this is where the young man goes, verse 21. It says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. The young man was not prepared, and he stepped in it. And I say stepped in it because that's actually the imagery that the father uses here. Um, like a snag, or stag in a trap or a bird in a snare, we don't do a lot of trapping these days, so we don't necessarily get fully what is going on there. But when a deer is walking through the forest and takes that last fatal step into a trap, um, it's not usually thinking like, I am one step away from death. It's just taking the next step. So it often is with sin. Often we're just not thinking about it and we step in the wrong place. We think it's just a little sin. But I've sat with many people whose lives have been turned upside down because of one moment. Now, I'm not trying to employ fear-based tactics here, like you better watch out, any moment could be your last. Um, but we do need to recognize that sin destroys. We need to take it seriously. We tend to think like, ah, oh, it's not that bad, I can handle it. But what the Bible warns us over and over again is at any moment, it can get you. So we need to not get caught up in the moment in such a way that we lose sight of the big picture. Because to go with the flow in this world that is bent towards sin is to be led by the world, the flesh, and the devil into death. The father now bookends his story of the forbidden woman with another call to fidelity. So he started off with a call to fidelity. He ends with, with the, the same here in verse 24. He says, And now, O sons, listen to me. And be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has been laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers 
of death. So the father gives us one more image here, one of paths. He tells the son not to stray into her path. Um, The implication here and throughout the book of Proverbs is that there is another path that he should be on. Right? There is a way that is good and that leads to life and flourishing. We see it in Proverbs 10 where it says, Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Or in chapter 15, the path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. What this gives us is an image of a path that leads to life and a path that leads to death. And while I am often want to encourage us not to view God's uh, kind of plan for our life as just this tightrope that we are going to fall off, even a path that once you're off it, you can never get back on. Um, I do think that there's something helpful in this view of the two paths. It reminds us that these two paths are going in completely different directions. They lead to completely different ends. We tend to blur them together and downplay the differences between God's way of life and the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We need to remember that they are completely different. And so to stray into the paths of the forbidden woman is to follow the way of the world, and it will lead you away from God. And as people who are inclined towards evil, who are bent towards what is sinful, if we try to have a relationship with God and a relationship with the forbidden woman, we will be led astray. That is not a possible thing to balance. Not because God is not powerful enough, but because we aren't. And so the warning here is to take temptation seriously, to recognize that the pull is strong, to put all of our energy then into walking the path of life. Do whatever you can to be filled with the truth of God and to act in line with what he has commanded. And so the reason to avoid sin is not just because it's bad, but because it gets in the way of what is far better. The path of life that God has set for us is a way to align ourselves with him, but also a way to flourish in the world that he created. It's the path to life. Not just life later on, life right now. And so this overlap between the spiritual and the physical is accentuated uh, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, When Jesus came to earth, he came in an earthly body. He lived an earthly life. He experienced temptation. He then went to the cross to free us from the eternal punishment of sin. And he rose again that we might be united with God so we could have the Holy Spirit with us to help us navigate every step we take in this world. And so Jesus provides us with what we know, what we need to know him, but also what we need to live for him. And so every week when we come here, we come here to unite ourselves together with him in communion, remembering that that is our only hope for salvation and the strength to live the life that he has called us to. So as you come to this, forward to the table today, come asking God to prepare you for temptation as you also commit to doing your part to follow his path of life. Let's pray.